The sermon text this morning will be Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 7 through 13, and chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. 3 verses 9 through 13. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid." Sometimes in life you wonder how two things go together, like oil and vinegar, uh, Mother's Day and a sermon about judgment. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I promise you, Zephaniah does talk about judgment, but he also brings a very good word uh, of salvation. You do find those two twin themes, uh, if you will, wrapped up uh, in his main discussion about the, uh, the day of the Lord. And, and Zephaniah follows uh, on the heels of Habakkuk, and Habakkuk ending on this day of distress. What does Zephaniah do? He unpacks uh, what that looks like, calling it the day of the Lord. But again, this day is not just going to bring judgment and distress, it's going to bring salvation for all those who trust in the Lord. So really, as we read and look at Zephaniah, as we talk about the text, it's really a call to examine ourselves. We really should think about who we really are. Are we those who Zephaniah says will be judged, or are we those who Zephaniah says will be saved when the Lord returns, when he finally brings his day, the day of the Lord, in which he makes all things right? And we begin to find out more about Zephaniah as we open up. Just take a look at verse uh, chapter 1, verse 1 in Zephaniah. Uh, Zephaniah says, uh, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Amon, king of Judah. So just a couple of things we want to note here. As Zephaniah begins his book, he says he's the son of Hezekiah, okay? Why is that important? Hezekiah was one of the most righteous kings in the history of Judah. He had this uh, three-decade-long, roughly, uh, period of uh, reform and 
revival, all right? Um, so his connection to Hezekiah uh, and not to Manasseh who went before him, it links him to this righteous royal lineage, which ultimately goes back to David. You read about David, 2 Samuel 7, what does David expect? What's promised to David? That God will return and he will both judge uh, Israel's enemies and also he will bring salvation, he will bring peace, he will bring prosperity to his people. Two themes of judgment and salvation that you also find right here in Zephaniah, which I think are rooted back all the way uh, in the life of, of David. And now uh, Zephaniah is tying himself to this righteous royal remnant, uh, if you will. And when does he write this book? Zephaniah says he writes it in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon. So Josiah rules right before Babylon comes and destroys uh, Jerusalem. And he rules roughly between um, 639 to 609 BC. But what does Josiah do? Josiah does uh, initiate and begin this period of revival uh, in the history of Judah. But at this point, that has not yet happened. So likely uh, the law, the book of the law has already been discovered or rediscovered, but these reforms have not yet been instituted in the life of Judah. So what you have, you've got Zephaniah, uh, this descendant of this righteous royal remnant who expects that God will return to make all things right, bring both uh, judgment and salvation, writing during this period in which he's expecting or looking forward to God returning and making all things right. And now he will talk about these twin themes of judgment and salvation that come, that come along with that return of the Lord, that day of the Lord where he will bring and exact his justice upon the earth. All right. So following this introduction, we see now Zephaniah begins to lay out his argument. In 1, 2 through 6, he will talk about this coming judgment that's coming not just over uh, Judah, but it's coming over the entire world. And Judah and Jerusalem will be swept along and away with this entire judgment because of their disobedience, uh, their idolatry, their syncretism, if you will, uh, against the Lord. And then following that, really, from 1, 7 to 3, 20, it's all about the day of the Lord. You've got these two twin themes woven throughout of judgment and salvation all the way from 1-7 to 3-20. So we're going to unpack this text and we'll start here. Let's look at 1-2-6 uh, as Zephaniah now talks about this coming judgment both upon the world and upon Judah. Look at, look at verses 2-3. through three. They say, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So who is God going to judge? Everyone, everything, animals, people, basically everything he creates in Genesis 1 is going to be undone. It's a period of decreation, if you will. He's going to do away with it all, okay? But if we're thinking, hey, this is everyone but Judah, Zephaniah makes it clear that Judah and Jerusalem are both included with this coming judgment that's coming upon the entire world. Look at verses 4 through 6. He says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remembrance of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heavens, 
those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. So God is going to judge not just the world, but Judah, those who had received these righteous promises of a king who will come and deliver his people, they too will be judged, and he charges them with idolatry. All right? If you look here, they've gone off and worshipped Baal. They've sworn by Milcom. And when you, when you commit idolatry this way, there's nothing more than calling it simply syncretism. The idea is they likely worship Yahweh, but they also worship Baal and Milcom. But because of that, they're going to be swept away in God's judgment. Uh, when the Old Testament talks about worshiping God, really the scriptures as a whole, there is no allotment, there is no space left to worship any other gods. If you think of Deuteronomy 6, we worship the one God alone. Judah had punted that. Because of that, God will bring judgment now upon them and also Israel. But I wonder if what we find here in Zephaniah and the life of Judah is very similar to what we find um, here in modern day America, North America, Western society, if you will, where you basically just pick and choose of whatever suits you. A um, little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's this smorgasbord of uh, spiritual religions. Whatever you need for that day, whatever's going to help me, that's what it is that I will worship. That's what I'll, what I'll do. You find a very similar thing going on in the life of Judah. So likely what was happening is they were worshiping Yahweh, going to the, temp- going to the temple, sacrificing, uh, etc. But they were all saying, let me go ahead and worship Baal because the land sure does need some rain. And by the way, let me go also go and ap- appease Milcom by sacrificing our child to him. Syncretism, pluralism do not work with the, the worship of the one true God. God tolerates no rivals. He tolerates it not in the life of Judah, not in our life either. And I wonder whether we suffer or perhaps have the temptation to also syncretize, maybe not uh, as blatant perhaps uh, as Judah did it, but maybe it's a little more subtle. Maybe we're not dabbling in Jesus and Buddhism or Jesus uh, and Hinduism, but maybe it certainly is a little more subtle in our lives. Things perhaps are a little more culturally acceptable in the life of North American Christians. So I've got a couple of examples. The first one is Jesus and nationalism. Um, That is, I love Jesus, but I think the people of my country are superior to the people of other nations. In fact, I think that God just sees the people of my country in a better light than he sees people of other countries or other nations. They have a higher or better standard. Almost as if um, our nation was a new and better Israel, if you will. What we're doing is we're elevating the status of our nation to the point where God does not elevate any nation. If you read the text of Zephaniah, no nation has any higher standing than any other before God. In fact, even Judah here is going to be judged because of their sin. God's going to pour out his judgment on all nations, all sinners, regardless of where we're from and who we are, God does not judge partially based upon our geopolitical associations, if you will. And if you're thinking of a kingdom we should be comfortable with, 
The only kingdom we should be that comfortable with is the kingdom that is yet to be revealed. The one in which all people who trust in Jesus will be a part of, that kingdom will compose, as Zephaniah is going to talk about, peoples from all nations who worship the one true God. So if you look at Zephaniah's message, it does not permit the possibility of any kind of idolatry or syncretism, obvious or subtle, and certainly we don't elevate our nation to the status where we think it has higher standing before God because all nations are deserving of God's wrath and judgment and the salvation that's only found by trusting in the Lord. Another example that's rampant um, throughout North America and also much of the world is Jesus and prosperity. I love Jesus, but I also love stuff, okay? I love cars, I love wealth, and it's gotten so bad that people make an idol out of prosperity. People who claim the name of Christ, and they'll even claim the name of Christ thinking God's going to get them uh, prosperity because they want a newer car, perhaps a better job, or a happy, healthier, and wealthier life. We can't serve both God and mammon, all right? One is going to win out over the other, and over time, we're going to see truly who our trust is really in. Now, is prosperity bad? It's not, all right? God may choose to bless us with, with wealth uh, and lots of good things, but he may not. I know wealthy Christians who use their money for lots of good for the kingdom, but we're not promised wealth and prosperity just because we worship Jesus. We've elevated prosperity to the status of an idol uh, in so many different circles. But if you look at scripture, what does it promise us? Just read the Gospel of Mark, for example, in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Um, the, the disciples, they don't get that following Jesus is going to bring them suffering. And every time Jesus talks about his death and resurrection, he, he mentions that following him is going is to mean suffering. He corrects their viewpoint every time. Take a look at 1 Peter as well. These Christians who are suffering, who Peter is teaching them to suffer well. If anything is promised to us in this current life, it's not prosperity. It's a life like the one Jesus lived, which could mean, may mean, will likely mean that we will suffer as Jesus suffered. But even though there is suffering now, it's not your best life now, uh, if you will. It's we suffer now knowing prosperity, wealth, a kingdom is what we will inherit in the future, a kingdom liberated from all sin, death, and destruction. So as you look at Zephaniah so far, you see, God tolerates no equals. He doesn't tolerate it in the life of Judah. There is nothing, no idol that can stand alongside him, obvious or subtle. All who worship idols, all who worship anything alongside the one true God will be swept away in the coming wrath that Zephaniah talks about. So it's important to examine ourselves. Are we more like Judah than we think we are? All right. If we are, there is certainly time to repent before this great day, this day of the Lord that Zephaniah promises finally comes. And now in the, the last part of this book, this is one big section, uh, if you will, from 1-7 to 3-20. Now we'll see the unpacking of what this day of the Lord looks like. And look how Zephaniah begins in 1-7. He says, be silent before the Lord God, all right? Be silent. The call to be silent is found throughout Scripture when we're to revere the king. And the king is now going to bring a message of judgment and also salvation for us, 
his readers. And look at the way this day of judgment is described. All right? Look at verse 7. It says, For the day of the Lord is near, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. So, so he describes the day of judgment as a sacrifice. And those who are invited are those that God will judge, i.e. he will sacrifice these sinners who have rebelled against him from all throughout the world, Jew and non-Jew. And he further describes this judgment. Look at verse 17. He describes it as, uh, he says, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust. So he describes this coming judgment as a day of sacrifice and in which these people's blood will be poured out. It sounds grotesque. I know it does. Um, But if you read throughout the scriptures, this is exactly the language of sacrifice that you find. What happens? Israel sins. Judah sins. Because of that, God is angry at them and he must pour out his wrath upon them. Tom has talked about wrath, so I'm not going to rehash that, but a God who does not bring justice upon people, upon sinners, is not a God we want to worship, but he will exact justice upon sinners, and he calls this a sacrifice, and their blood will be poured out. But what happens under the old covenant? There is provision for sin. Those who sin, if you look at the book of Leviticus, for example, there is an animal, take the Day of Atonement, or a goat that is sacrificed and his blood is poured out, his blood is shed in place of the people. In other words, the animal dies, the animal is sacrificed so that the people don't die, that the people aren't sacrificed, that God does not pour out his wrath upon them. But as we see throughout the Old Testament, these sacrifices had to be repeated yearly, over and over and over again because these sacrifices were imperfect. And what, this, what, this, what Zephaniah is saying is that this judgment is coming on all mankind. It's universal, both Jew and non-Jew, both Jew and Gentile. And there is no substitute for such people. No one to appease God's wrath. Sinners themselves will be his sacrifice. God will bring his due justice upon them. All right? So it sounds awful and it sounds imminent. Sinners themselves will be the sacrifice. But notice specifically who will be judged. Among those, look at verses 10 through 12. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter. A loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar. For all the traitors are no more. All who will weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Notice here he mentioned merchants. He mentions traitors but he does not explicitly condemn them. Instead, he points out those who are complacent. These are people who are pleased with their lot. They're wealthy, they're happy, or at least they're enjoying life, not thinking, hey, God's going to return, and we're going to have to give an account. 
all right? They don't even want to think about what's to come. It's the last thing on their mind. Mark Dever describes these people as spiritually apathetic and unaffected by God. Their complacency does not take into account the nearness of God's judgment. That's why Zephaniah in verse 12 describes them as, as those who say, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. All things will continue as they've been continuing. So let's just enjoy life. Let's enjoy our stuff. Let's enjoy the blessings that we have because God's not going to return to bring either judgment or to bring either blessing. All right, Life's simply going to continue as they are. They have no thought of God and no thought of when he's going to return to put all things to rights. Is it possible that we live the same way? Is it possible that we've confessed Jesus as Lord but we really live with no sense of urgency to live holy lives before God, to serve our brothers and sisters with no sense of urgency, to love people by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them, to help those who can't speak for themselves, simply enjoying wealth, success, and comfort, going through the motions of life. Got a nice car, all right? I got a nice house. I've got a nice 401k, all right? I've got a nice retirement. Life is good right now. Hey, I just got a new boat. Life is good. I'm enjoying all the stuff, all the very good blessings uh, that I have. Now, again, those things aren't necessarily evil. They're not. They're very good blessings that God gives us to enjoy. However, when our life is exclusively focused on those things, so much so that we have very little time for pursuing God, serving the church, reading the scriptures, loving others as we're called to do. That's simply a passing afterthought in our lives, even though we may go through the Christian motions like going to church, for example, but we know in our hearts what we're really focused on is stuff, the complacency of life. That's where we know our lives really aren't focused on sincere devotion to the Lord, but instead they're focused on sincere devotion to stuff. If you will, these things are idols in our lives, and our lives are beginning to show who or what it is that we are now worshiping. So if you will, as you look at this, we should consider our lives. Um, Success, wealth, job promotions, um, those are all good things. And God may promote his people. He may give his people wealth. And praise God if he does. Again, we're not promised those things. But if our life is solely focused on cultivating, um, enriching those areas of, of our lives to the detriment of following Jesus, pursuing Jesus in our daily lives, we know really who we're following. And ultimately, truly, God knows who it is we're truly following so we ask ourselves the question, who or what are we pursuing? It's a call to healthy examination. Are we actively pursuing God or are, are we actively pursuing complacency? And it's easy. We all do it. It happens to me sometimes, for example, in times in which I have to repent in my life. 
life gets, it gets monotonous, it gets easy, it gets complacent. So I teach classes and then I, uh, I torture students when I grade their papers. And it gets, it's this flowing circle of life and it gets complacent and easy. And my life, I don't watch it, begins to focus on those things. And I have to stop and recalibrate and think, who is it I'm really serving here? All right? Am I trying to advance a career or am I really trying to pursue the Lord? Zephaniah is a call to examine ourselves. Who are we really pursuing? Are we pursuing stuff, success, complacency, or are we really pursuing the Lord? Judah wasn't, and because of that, they're going to be judged. The world certainly wasn't. Because of that, they're going to be judged. Zephaniah makes no excuses. All those who are seeking, pursuing complacency, they are those who Zephaniah says, their blood will be poured out like dust. And that's serious. So the picture's been pretty bleak uh, so far. Zephaniah says, judgment's coming. And I think we can all find errors of our lives where we say, yeah, we're complacent. Perhaps we dabbled um, in some kind of syncretistic mindset, if you will. So is there hope? Because it looks like we're all going to be judged. And certainly we all deserve to be judged. But Zephaniah certainly brings a word of hope in the next half of his book. Look what he says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. There's certainly judgment coming, uh, but there's also salvation or restoration. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff. All right, there's this urgency about this coming day. Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Before there comes upon you the day of anger of the Lord. So it's coming. Zephaniah wants the people to do the following. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. So where is our hope? Zephaniah says it's by seeking the Lord. Is this a difficult thing? It, can it be potentially um, fearful? Yes, because who's the one we're to seek? The very one that will bring judgment upon us. But he's the one that we have sinned against. Thus we seek him for forgiveness. Because he's the one who's going to bring vengeance upon us because of our sin against him. But again, what does this look like? I mean, judgment is coming. What does it mean to seek the Lord? What does it mean to trust the Lord? All right. So here's where we read Zephaniah in light of what Zephaniah is saying, but in light of how other places in Scripture really bring light upon the argument Zephaniah is saying. So who are those who are going to find salvation in the Lord by seeking them? Who are those who are going to be hidden from God's wrath? All right. So again, how does Zephaniah describe this judgment? He describes it as a sacrifice. And those who are sacrificed, their blood will be poured out. But I talked about in Leviticus how there was provision for sin. Where an animal was taken, sacrificed, his blood was poured out so that the people would not have to die. So the animal suffers, the animal is sacrificed, the animal's blood is poured out so the people would not have to suffer. It was a substitute, if you will. But 
those substitutionary sacrifices could not ever finally and fully satisfy the wrath of God. They had to be done year after year after year. So if we enter back in the prophets, what does Isaiah talk about? In Isaiah 53, Isaiah looks forward to a suffering servant, okay? One who God would pour out his wrath upon in place of the people. He would sacrifice him. He would crush him so that the people would not have to be sacrificed, that the people would not have to be crushed, all right? Where does this all lead us now as we keep moving forward in Scripture story? What do we find in Jesus? The sacrifices, the suffering servant, all those images, all those shadows are fulfilled in Jesus. He was sacrificed. His blood was poured out on our behalf so that if we trust in him, we are then hidden from God's wrath because Jesus is our very good and final substitute for our sins. Zephaniah points us forward to one who was sacrificed and his blood was poured out for our transgressions. And if you have any doubt about that, what do biblical authors often do? They read scripture so they might clarify what's before and also advance their own arguments that are now fulfilled in Christ. This is something the Apostle Peter makes very clear for us as we read Zephaniah. So if you read once again verses 17 through 18 in chapter 1, Zephaniah talks about their blood being poured out. And then in verse 18, neither shall silver nor their gold be able to deliver them or redeem them on the day of the Lord. But it's very interesting how Peter clarifies for us the one in whom we are to trust, the one in whom we are delivered and hidden from God's wrath. If you read 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19, all right, Peter's making, making it abundantly clear for us, as I think he's drawing on Zephaniah as he's writing uh, to us, as, as he's writing to his readers. He says, 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed or delivered from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, as Zephaniah says, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What does Zephaniah say? Hey, your blood will be poured out. Your silver, your gold, your stuff will not be able to save you. Peter agrees, but Peter says, yes, silver or gold cannot redeem you. They cannot save you. But you know what does redeem you? What does hide you from God's wrath? It's not your blood. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. So when we trust in the blood of Christ, we trust in the one who has been sacrificed, whose blood has been poured out in our place so that we would not have to be sacrificed, that we might not have to be judged. And for all those who trust in Jesus, we have salvation. We are hidden from God's wrath that is to come. Zephaniah speaks to us. Peter speaks to us. The scriptures speak to us.
to trust in Jesus. They also speak to us to rightly understand that our comfort, though things may be very good now, life may be happy, healthy, it may even, we may even be blessed uh, monetarily. We may even have a very nice retirement fund waiting for us, a nice car. Life is good, but these things of comfort, this silver, this gold, will not redeem us because our blood is still required because of our sin. But thank God there's, there's been one whose blood has been shed finally and fully for our sin, and his name is Jesus. And our trust and our hope is only in him. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard about um, the Roaring uh, 20s. I'm kind of a history buff, so I like um, talking about these things. Uh, the Roaring 20s, it was a period of unprecedented prosperity uh, in the history of this country. And my home city, Miami, certainly benefited uh, from this prosperity. Uh, they had hotels going up, casinos, um, the beaches were being built up, the, the city was growing economically, so much so that between the years of 1920 and 1926, the population had doubled in size from about 48,000 to about 100,000 100, people. Life was good. Life was prosperous. Life was complacent. All right. Little did they know, on September 17th, two, uh, 1926, uh, there was one of the largest hurricanes ever on record just offshore of the coast of Florida. Those people had no idea of the judgment that laid just off the coast in Florida. They were living their lives as if they were never going to come to an end, as if God was never going to require an account for sin. So on the morning of September 18th, 1926, this hurricane slams uh, onto the coast of Florida. Most people were completely unprepared for the hurricane. The hurricane killed around 372 people and injured about 6,000 people, devastating people, families, and also the economy in Miami. There were roughly $105 million in damages, totaling in today's money about $164 billion in today's dollars. But all their complacency, all their wealth could not save them from this judgment that was to come. They were completely caught off guard, unprepared for this storm, this judgment that came on shore. And if you read scriptures, for some people, I mean, they're going to be caught completely off guard. It's going to be uh, like a thief in the night, uh, if you will. All right? The pe people, when God returns to make all things right, when he brings both judgment, when he brings both salvation, people will be complacent, enjoying life, not knowing that God's judgment is just offshore. God's judgment is just around the corner, and then it comes, and we have nowhere to hide. But we have the scriptures. We have Zephaniah. It's a call for us both to understand, but to tell others of what's looming just around the corner. We have the opportunity to be hidden from God's wrath. We have the opportunity to tell others about the looming wrath, but also salvation. We have the opportunity to both believe and tell people that our comfort, our trust does not lie in 
stuff, not material prosperity, not a lifestyle we're trying to cultivate for ourselves. Our comfort is actually found in the most, if you will, paradoxical of places. It's found on a cross where both judgment and salvation meet. Judgment poured out upon Jesus so that we might be saved. Our comfort, our mercy is only found on a wooden cross. So what happens to those who actually do trust in the Lord? Zephaniah goes on to talk about this in verses 2, 6 through 7. He describes this place that God's going to bring his redeemed into as a pasture. Throughout the scriptures, a pasture is described as the place where God dwells with his people. It's like a new Eden where they will dwell with their shepherd. If you read John 8, who is their shepherd? It's Jesus, the Messiah. And the remainder of chapter 8 talks about how God will judge all of Judah's enemies like Assyria, Nineveh, Moab, and the Ammonites. And there will no longer be a place, no longer be room for evil people to afflict God's people because he will purify the earth of all wickedness and sin and all wicked people. And not just the nations, even the hypocrites within Judah. People like evil officials, evil prophets, evil priests, they will all be judged and the earth will be purified of all sin. And if there was ever any doubt that God, yes, he will bring both ill and he will bring both good, as the complacent people think he's not going to bring, just read 3.8. In chapter 3, verse 8, Zephaniah says, therefore, wait for me. That means it's going to happen. I'm coming declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, and to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. He will judge people from every nation who have not trusted in him And what else is going to happen? Yes, the earth is going to be purified. There is no longer going to be any sin or sinner, wicked prophets, wicked priests. This pasture, this new Eden, will be a place fit for God's people. And he talks about in verse 9, that is, he will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. That is, people from different people groups or nations will be able to call upon the Lord. Okay, It's, if you will, an undoing, a reversal of what happened at Babylon. In Babylon, there was confusion. In the future, there will be a unified voice, peoples calling upon the Lord. All right? And if you look further, who's going to dwell with them in this place? Look at verse 15. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. He, you shall never again fear evil. So the King of Israel comes, who is none other than Jesus himself. He's the one through whom his people have been redeemed by trusting in him. And in this place, this land, this new Eden, this eternal life will be freed of evil, delivered from wickedness, from sin, all the complacent, all the syncretizers. It will be a place filled with God's presence and for God's people. So as we read Zephaniah and we bring this to a close, the vision of the day of the Lord is very real It's very frightening, but it's also very hopeful. It will be devastating for all sinners who have not trusted in the Lord. And it is coming 
but it also be very good for all those who have trusted in the Lord. So in light of Zephaniah's message, we have to ask ourselves the question, actually the two questions that I raised at the beginning of this sermon. Are we those that Zephaniah would characterize as those who will be judged? The idolaters, the syncretistic, the complacent, those who are happy with the way life is now so much so that God is simply an afterthought, if a thought at all, in their lives? Or are we those who Zephaniah would characterize as those who are persistently seeking the Lord, seeking the Lord Jesus who was sacrificed on their behalf? Zephaniah should move us to ask ourselves those questions. When the Lord returns, when the day of the Lord comes, it is awesome, but it would also, it, it's also beautiful. Yes, sinners will be judged, but we who have trusted in the Lord will be saved. We will be delivered, delivered to dwell with our King, Jesus. So who are we? Are we those who will be judged, or are we those who will be saved? Let's pray.